Hey, previously on the Boulder Bassoon Quartet podcast, we were talking about the mysteries of classical music, the state of affairs, the changing of culture, and everything else that we are in no way qualified to talk about. <laughs> so <laughs> this is a continuation of that. Um, and uh, in this episode, we will solve all the problems that classical music faces. take a look at something that's pretty interesting. Somebody put this together on the internet so you know it's true. This is from properdiscord.com. Oh, look at this. Compiled for the New Yorker. So this probably has some, some good substance to it. It's called What is Killing Classical Music? Over the years, we've accused many things of killing classical music. So far, none of them have. The first entry goes all the way back to the year 1324 when the Pope Pope John 22 wrote, the voices incessantly rock to and fro, intoxicating rather than soothing the ear, while the singers themselves try to convey the emotion of the music by their gestures. The consequence of all this is that devotion, the true aim of worship, is neglected. Basically, he's talking about popular music. The next entry is 1530 and the divine services is sung by lascivious musicians hired for a great stipend, not for the understanding of the heavens, but for the stirring up of the mind, but for dishonest lasciviousness, not with manly voices, but with uh, beastly skeeking. Skeeking? That's interesting. I've never heard that word before. Skeeking. Can you spell that? S-K-E-E-K-I-N-G. I mean, is this essentially in, in response to the, you said 1530? 1530. So I think during this time, um, it was not uncommon for quote unquote traditional composers to write masses uh, or motets based on uh, music or text from like secular songs. Well, I think what it might be getting at here is this idea of um, all this stuff is sung by lascivious musicians hired for a great stipend, not for the understanding of the heavens. So these professional musicians coming in and getting paid and working basically as mercenaries instead of devout religious people who are there just to explore the heavens and all that. They are dishonest uh, lasciviousness, not with manly voices, but with beastly skeeking. While the children bray the discant, some bellow the tenor, some bark the counterpoint, some howl the treble, some grunt the bass, and cause many sounds to be heard and no words and sentences to be understood. <laughs> so there you go. By the way, that, that uh, you know, we kind of skimmed out right over something important about this classical revolution thing, where it says, the musicians, a mix of freelancers, conservatory students, and techies who play on the side are volunteers. So the, you know, that brings to, to light a, a huge point that we didn't talk about at all, which is paying musicians and these guys making a living off of this stuff. So getting a bunch of people to play for free in a bar, that's one thing. Does it work with professionals? Like, can that be a replacement for the orchestra in a concert hall? Right now, there's a huge amount of 
musical organizations in the Boulder, Denver area, but how many of them are, you know, supporting professional musicians? And does anybody care? So like there's a community <laughs> orchestra in Boulder. Actually, there are two of them. And they're doing well for themselves. And people can argue that having more amateur groups in the area supports the pros. And you can also argue that it does not. So which would it be? What do you do? Who knows? It's one of the many things killing classical music. We need to assign a task force yeah, okay. to study all facets of this complex problem. Um, in the year 1600, I guess Monteverdi was killing classical music. And he wrote, Such composers, in my opinion, and I assume he's talking about Monteverdi, such composers, in my opinion, have nothing but smoke in their heads if they are so impressed with themselves as to think they can corrupt, abolish, and ruin at will the good old rules handed down from the days of old. That all seems like somebody could say that about today, as a matter of fact. 1609, somebody wrote about how the figured bass is killing music. 1683, money. Here's a very modern-sounding one. Profits at the door, instead of growing, are diminishing, evidently endangering the continuation of this noble entertainment. That was 1680? 1683. Profits at the door diminishing, evidently endangering the continuation of this noble entertainment. Well, doesn't that sound familiar? And yet, somehow, classical music has survived uh, past 1683. So the basic idea of this article is challenging the fact that classical music is dying. There's always been something to kill off classical music. 1683, it was money. 1740, it was apparently the violin. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Salton violin and abortion and a pygmy took it into his head to challenge the universal dominion of the viola da gamba in France. So the violin was on an uprise and pushing out what we now consider to be old period Baroque instruments. Yeah. In 18... It succeeded. Yeah. Yay. In 1827, quote, the effect which the writings of Beethoven have had on the art must, I fear, be considered as injurious. Led away by the force of his genius and dazzled by its creations, a crowd of imitators has arisen uh, who have displayed as much harshness, as much extravagance, and as much obscurity with little or none of his beauty and grandeur. Thus, music is no longer intended to soothe, to delight, to wrap the senses in Elysium. It is absorbed in one principle, to astonish. That actually kind of has a point. <laughs> yeah. So that was 1827. Um, so this guy was correctly saying how Mahler was killing music. Wait, Mahler wasn't born in 1827? Beethoven. That's not the point. <laughs> oh, Do you think he was talking about Berlioz? No, I, well, I don't know. A crowd of imitators... I mean, everybody after Beethoven was an imitator to some degree or another. So yeah, this is definitely true. <laughs> uh, let's see here. In 1843, somebody wrote about the piano killing classical music. 1902, somebody wrote about Debussy. The music of Debussy leads to the emaciation and ruin of our essence. It contains germs not of life and progress, but of decadence and death. Nice. Yeah. The next year, somebody wrote about money. This is 1903. 
the permanent orchestra season has, as usual, been financially a bad one. <laughs> I mean, really, that quote could be used any year. A permanent orchestra, it seems to be pretty well established by American experience, is not at present a paying institution and is not likely immediately to become so. When was that? Yeah. This is still 1903. This is Richard Aldrich, who wrote Permanent Orchestra Season, a bad one, <laughs> for the New York Times. season is here. I gotta do a lot of Christmas shopping. Don't forget Festivus. And oh man, the Festivus poll is up. What can I do to get some good quality, worthwhile, meaningful presents for all the bassoonists and bassoon enthusiasts in my life? For the bassoon enthusiast in your life, I think they definitely need to be able to swag out. I think they can do that with a Boulder Bassoon Quartet t-shirt. There's long sleeve, short sleeve, we've even got some Boulder Bassoon Quartet hoodies. These are available at our website, boulderbassoons.com. What should I get for my extended family, the uninitiated, who have not had the pleasure of hearing the Boulder Bassoon Quartet live in concert? Well, you could get them our latest CD. It's also our only CD. <laughs> <laughs> and where is that available? It's available on our website, boulderbassoons.com. And? And at our live shows. And? And on Amazon, and iTunes, and, and Spotify. And it's and available on the website of our sponsor, Forest Music. Wait, 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 what's Forest Music? Forest Music is a supplier of fine bassoon and oboe supplies. They have everything you need as a professional or enthusiast. That's forestsmusic.com. Uh, 1906, the player piano killed music. <clears throat> In 1923, we're back to money. Uh, rich men will pay the deficit in Chicago as elsewhere. They always do. Uh, that seems to be one of the things rich men are for, and enough of them seem to be aware of their duty and destiny to keep things going in the orchestral world. The only trouble in some places, indeed, as in New York, is to restrain the rich men from rushing ahead and founding new orchestras when somebody asks for them, whether they are needed by the public or not. Well, how about that? I like that one a lot. Rushing off to create new orchestras that are unneeded. Uh, 1930, the gramophone was the death of music. In 1950, we're back to money again. The economic crisis confronting the American Symphony Orchestra is becoming increasingly acute. 1969, it was money. 1987, money again. More of America's symphony orchestras are in trouble than at any time since the Depression. 2009, the CD was killing music. 2009. Yeah, let's see here. In 1996, American composer John Adams wrote a whirly gig of a piece called Scratch Band. It would be the perfect track to play for anyone who thinks classical music is plotting or stuffy beyond saving, except for the fact that no one owns a legal recording of the music. <laughs> it's not as though Adams is ashamed of his daring 12-minute essay in sound. He's simply been at a loss for more than a decade when it comes to identifying a major symphonic work or concerto that scratch band 
would make sense next to on an 80 minute CD. It's time someone said it. The cult of the CD is throttling discovery and enjoyment of new concert music to an unacceptable degree. So the restrictive length of a CD prevents you from doing stuff. A couple years later, it was YouTube. Uh, one of the world's leading concert pianists angrily exited a performance on Monday evening saying YouTube was destroying music after he caught a member of the audience filming him on a mobile phone. And then this year, 2014, classical music was killed by the aging audience. Classical music was merely becoming the realm of the old. Uh, that might be manageable. But Sandow's data on the demographics of classical audiences suggests something worse. Younger fans are not converting to classical music as they age. The last generation to broadly love classical music may simply be aging like World War I veterans out of existence. The last generation of people to enjoy classical music. <laughs> So there's always been a wide range of things to kill classical music, and yet somehow we keep dragging it back into existence. <laughs> <laughs> so in conclusion, nothing. Nobody has any answers about all this stuff. If anybody did, all the orchestras across the country and probably across the world would make quick changes so that they could flourish and, and everybody would live happily ever after. So if you have any ideas how to fix classical music, let us know. Ha! That's it? We're going to end the conversation there? <laughs> you know, this can be an ongoing, endless thing. Right. What do you want to... There's, there's got to... There are several things going on here. One of them is the technology that disappears and is replaced by something different, like the viola da gamba and the violin. Yeah. Uh, I can't believe they didn't write about the modern bassoon replacing the classical era and Baroque era bassoons. One of them is, is the audience. One of them is the, as you said, the um, creation and propagation of orchestras, whether they are able to be supported by the surrounding community or not. Uh, one of them is the ebb and flow of the economic situation and how that is mirrored in the arts. Do you think... So we, you know, there are a lot of orchestras out there. There are very few full-time jobs available in music for professional orchestras, right? Particularly considering the number of people who are graduating from conservatories. And a lot of people are studying music in college. Mm -hmm. Do you think that as a university instructor, you have an obligation to dissuade people from studying music in college? Now, see, that's an interesting question. Oh. Um, and I think about that question almost every single day of my life. And? Um, What's the answer? Well, the answer is sort of kind of back and forth. Sometimes it depends on what mood I'm in. The, there's two basic fundamental Ooh. things going on. Thing number one is, yes, I definitely think that I have an obligation to make it very clear to my students, um, specifically my bassoon students, to an extent, the students that I have in theory class, like other music major students, um, I definitely have an obligation to make clear to them what the professional prospects are. Um, what do you tell them? Well, I tell them that 
number one, if you if you want to be a um, art music musician or any kind of musician, if you expect to be able to make a living, then you better be really, really extraordinarily good at what you do. Secondly, I tell them that you need a very broad base of skills. It's not enough just to be able to shred on your instrument. You need to also uh, be able to play a little bit of piano. You need to have a, a working knowledge of music history, music theory. Um, you need to be versatile. You need to know some music technology stuff. Thirdly, I tell, specifically I tell my bassoon students that I strongly recommend that they take some business classes and consider taking a business minor uh, in order to work with the necessary entrepreneurial aspect of being able to market yourself. What is actually a good point. Uh, yeah. Because yeah. Yeah, I think you need to be a little bit more business-minded these days. Well, I mean, I, I'll tell you that when I was in school, all the way through school, I had some very small, shallow experiences with the idea of being an entrepreneur for myself, but it was never pushed as an important thing. And at this point, I regret that very much because now I'm kind of on the fly trying to learn where I have the deficiencies. I think right now, entrepreneurship and music is a big thing. Right. And it's, it's possible. I think, I think Eastman has raised funding for a whole new building and a whole new school, and it's all about music entrepreneurship. It might be Julia, but I think it's Eastman. Um, but yeah, just a few years ago, it was not a big thing. And it was kind of like, the path that you take is you go to school and you study music and right. you practice a lot and then you go win an audition and then you play in that orchestra for the rest of your life and maybe you move up to a different orchestra, blah, blah, blah. And that's, that's all falling apart. Yeah, it's just not, it's not that way anymore. But, so on the flip side though, the other thing that I think about this scenario is, number one, there are all these young people studying classical music and whether they get jobs in classical music or not, I find it highly unlikely that they're going to stop loving classical music. I find it highly unlikely that when they're 30 and 50 and 70 years old, they're not going to want to go see a Beethoven symphony or a new symphony that's written by a living composer. But are they going to want to go see the show or are they going to want to pick up their instrument, dust it off and say, oh, you know what, I'll play in this crappy community orchestra and that'll satisfy my urge and I'll get all my friends and family to come to this too. Because who's got the time and the money to like buy a ticket for the symphony, drive all the way down there, struggle to find a parking spot, uh, walk into the concert hall and uh, find your seat and pay for all the extra stuff? I do. We, the three of us went to the uh, ballet just a couple nights ago. Like, I love doing that stuff. But I think a lot of other people are like, oh my God, that's, that's such a long night that eats up mm -hmm. my whole time. Like, I just want to kick back and you know, watch some dumb TV show that doesn't require me to think. I mean, now you're opening up a whole, whole can of worms yeah, about American society as a concept. And that's why nobody can find any kind of solutions to all this stuff, because there's so many, it's such a multifaceted yeah. problem. Yeah. One big solution, I'm oh, sorry, go ahead. The thing I was going to say is I don't, I don't think that this exists in a vacuum. I think that this whole problem of like the new the, the rising generation, the new generation of, of people wanting a different idiom to experience classical music in is very similar to, I think, how office spaces are changing and other jobs. Like, at my day job, you can work from home, and that's a competitive 
thing. They know why they do that because people want that kind of flexibility. You can also, um, there's more flexibility as to what times you work, what times of the day, and people demand that. And, and if you don't offer it, then people are gonna move somebody somewhere else that, that has that benefit, if you have the skill set. So, so what I'm saying is, I think that idea that people want more casual, people want more you know, flexibility, just kind of kicking back, is not at all reserved for classical musicians. It's just the nature of our culture yeah. in general. Social trends change and the expectations change. So inevitably, whatever form classical music survives in this day and age will be based on who is able to adapt to the demands. What do you think is the, the newest form of music that might fall into the category of like art music? In the course of music history, you know, you go, okay, classical period, and the romantic period, Romantic period started with Beethoven and kind of was brought to its height by jerks like Mahler and Wagner. And then you got 20th century, which maybe was defined first by Stravinsky and he kind of turned everything upside down. But then what? Well, Schoenberg. Don't forget Schoenberg. Sure. But I think that might be a little pocket that kind of like mm-hmm. popped up. Like Stravinsky, I think you can feel his impact on just about everything. Right? I would argue you can feel Schoenberg's impact on everything. And it obliterates the whole preconception of what classical music is and after that bomb is dropped then things kind of start to re-coagulate I don't even know if re-coagulate is a word so even though don't get me wrong maybe I love getting too much into the weeds here but even though Schoenberg's concept of 12 tone music he called it what the tonality for the next thousand years which obviously hasn't happened no but even though we don't all play 12-tone music all the time, nevertheless, his influence on how people think of music in general oh, is yeah. felt. I mean, you can't go to an action movie or a horror movie without hearing music that is specifically influenced by the mm-hmm. fact that Schoenberg obliterates tonality. Mm-hmm. So music history goes on. You've got Stravinsky and all these guys. So what's the next form? I mean, how about work backwards? Uh-huh. From 2014, what was the most recent substantial contribution? I mean, I think if we were going forwards, if we were going the other way you were going in the first place, chronologically, there's a strong argument for like jazz and uh-huh. um, like the evolution of like swing going to bebop is a lot like classical to romantic. So I concur. I think that a lot of times when people say like, "Oh, who's the greatest American composer?" For whatever reason, everybody always steers towards classical music. Copeland, Gershwin, Bernstein. Gershwin kind of hits both. But, but then, you know, somebody brought up the point that um, Duke Ellington really yeah. should be at the top of the mm-hmm. list. Yeah. And so, do we consider that to go in the same timeline? Or do we try to have separate timelines? Because there was pop music and folk music throughout all of music history. But we never really address all that as we're talking about. Beethoven and stuff. But Beethoven addresses it. I mean, the scherzos in Beethoven's symphony are a nod to popular music. Mm-hmm. The mazurkas uh, that Chopin writes, is a, those are a nod 
to popular dance form. Going backwards and going forwards, I think you've got to consider the important role of technology. And I think the... Um, so is that it? Like, if you're talking about the history of music, you go from like Beethoven, Wagner, and Stravinsky to digital computers. I think you go. I, I think, gonna think you deal. go in jazz to jazz. Yeah. Because you you go to um, yeah like Duke Ellington, Dixieland jazz, uh, and then you can go to swing and then bebop, and then after that really you can really see the parallels to romantic music because things got very like modal and um there were there was a oh, lot man. of like yeah just like ridiculousness joe Mahler showed up and, and ruined uh, jazz. <laughs> 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 well and john coltrane goes off and makes these you know and makes these things about he makes the albums that are increasingly abstract until you get to interstellar space where there's just no like discernible form or tonality or anything. Is that preceding Sun Ra? It's kind of in that same era. In that same era, yeah, exactly. Of like Sun Ra and this idea that this guy is actually from Saturn and he's like <laughs> come to Earth to solve all the world's problems through music. You know, things just go like completely crazy. And and then you start getting like mu music that's more influenced by technology. So Miles Davis is a really good example because Miles Davis existed all the way back in like the 40s with like late swing and early bebop. But then he goes all the way into like the 80s with like MIDI. He went and full electronics and like <laughs> completely nuts. Yeah. He dove in head first there. So then what? Well, then you've got the neoclassical period in jazz and Wynton Marsalis. So is that it? I mean, like. No, of course not. When the dust settles a hundred years from now, we look back, yeah. what will people say? Like, oh, music changed drastically in the 90s when uh, Britney Spears showed up. <laughs> no. <laughs> What's it going to be? I, I think it's, I mean, I think it's the computer and I think it's the digital age. And you could, you know, pull Milton Babbitt and his experiments with synthesizer out of there. But I think what I'm getting at is that, like, back in the day, Beethoven was a big deal, you know. In his own time, mm -hmm. he was a big deal. Haydn was a big deal. Like, I, I was uh, surprised to find uh, when the Creation Symphony debuted, there was a huge crowd. People lined up. They had to call in, like, extra police or whatever to control the crowds and stuff. What's today's equivalent? Radiohead? Yeah. People like Radiohead pull huge crowds. So but, but it's... You know, it's one of those things. It's like <laughs> Radiohead pulls the same kind of crowds that um, Taylor Swift does. So, you know, I mean... Who, <laughs> what are you saying about Taylor Swift, Ian? <laughs> <laughs> so who do you... Who who lands at the top when the dust settles? That's a, that's a difficult question because with technology, like, recordings exist of all those. Like, we have these permanent renditions of all that stuff. There are all these great stories about these events in classical music history, like the premiere of Rite of Spring, mm -hmm. uh, you know, resulting in a riot. And the only time I ever hear anything in the realm of classical music is like, oh, some guy's cell phone went off and they had to stop the piece. Yeah. Or, oh, this orchestra's folding. <laughs> so I think that could be the greatest thing to help save classical music, quote unquote, if we could find somehow 
one composer that can sort of somehow be a new, amazing, fun thing that everybody could get by. There are so many good composers out there, but there's not one of them that stands out beyond the rest. But anyway, that's what I keep hoping for, is that somehow, sometime soon, we'll get some huge, big deal that will write up His Paul Hansen. And is, is, you know, really? I'm <laughs> it all started with us, folks. <laughs> Remember that? We were the first to commission Paul. That's funny. We'll be, we'll be in the 73rd edition of Kamian. We'll be some footnote. The music history would be pretty cool. <laughs> well, folks, there you have it. You've uh, fallen into the twilight zone. <laughs> <laughs> if you've made it through this long, we, uh, boy, we congratulate you. <laughs> <laughs>